You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. If you would like to learn more about our ministry, please visit hydepark.church. going to be back in the uh, book of Acts today. So we have two places I don't want you to find. First of all, find Acts chapter 8. And then I want you to hold your place there at Acts chapter 8. And then I want you to uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I want to use uh, a couple of verses out of 2 Corinthians 5 to kind of set the tone for uh, what we're going to be looking at today with Philip uh, as he is directed by the Spirit. Uh, it's first an angel, then a spirit, to go down to Gaza, that God has an appointment for Philip down there. But before we get into the Acts text, I want to take a look at 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you have your spot in 2 Corinthians 5, let's take a look at verse 17. It says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. So the, the Greek behind that word or that phrase, new creation, actually means a new creature. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a brand new person. Now, how is that even possible? First of all, uh, the, the miracle that happens every time a person puts their faith in Jesus uh, after hearing the good news and understanding the good news is that not only are we forgiven and set free from our past, but in that moment, we become a brand new person. Now, from the outside, we look the same, although our actions are going to change. The, the things that we participate in are going to change. The inside person is a brand new person. That's why when we, we do a baptism, it signifies that, that a, a brand new person has been brought up out of that water. It's a symbol of that uh, person that has died, the old person, the old you that has now gone and now a brand new person. So Paul tells us here that we are a brand new creature, a new creation in Christ. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. He's, he's emphasizing that newness of life in Christ that only comes through the good news, through the gospel. Then he says this, verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So not only does Paul talk about our new identity in Christ, but he also talks about a new ministry that we've been given. And that new ministry is a ministry of reconciliation. What, is, what does it mean to reconcile? Well, between you and God, when you came to faith in Christ, you were reconciled to God, which means before you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you were separated from God. You, your sins, your disobedience, all the things that you had done wrong and all the things that you'd done in disobedience towards God. The Bible says that we were all born into sin. Every one of us is born into sin, chooses to sin, and therefore that sin separates us from God. So there is a, a serious imbalance between us and God, that God is high and holy and mighty, and there's no way that a sinful human being can have a right relationship with God in and of ourselves. So what God did through Jesus Christ the Son and Him dying in our place, taking the full wrath of God upon Himself, when we put our faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. In other words, we are made right with God, not because of works that we've done, but because of what Jesus accomplished on our behalf. So what it means is, is that we're in right standing with God, even though it doesn't mean we're perfect. We're still going to make mistakes, but not because 
of our old self, but because our new self sometimes listens to the flesh more than it listens to the spirit. We are a new creation in Christ. But not only have we been reconciled to God, it says we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. Now, what do you think that means? Well, if we've been reconciled with God and we have new identity in Christ, then the ministry we've been given is to go out into the world and help others become reconciled to God. In other words, to share the gospel, to help them understand that, yes, in fact, they are sinful. Yes, in fact, they've been born into sin and that they have a change of mind about who Jesus is, about the gospel, which is, in essence, repentance, and put their faith in Christ. So we have a new identity we have a new ministry, and then look at this. We have a new calling or a new purpose. Verse 20 says, therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Ambassadors. You think about that term in, in relation to our government, and we have people all over the world who represent the United States on foreign soil. We have ambassadors to China. We have ambassadors in Japan. We have ambassadors in the Middle East. And those people, although they're living there, represent America and represent our interest in that country. And even the embassy that they live in, that particular embassy is considered U.S. soil, even though it's in a foreign country. So, for example, if you're, if you're in a foreign country and, and you lose your passport or uh, you get into some kind of trouble and, and you need help, uh, but you can't get back to the States. You just have to make your way to the embassy. And once you step into that embassy, it's just like being on American soil. Paul says that we are ambassadors, that we represent a country, a king, a kingdom. And what I want you to see this morning is that our new identity in Christ and the fact that we are ambassadors are one and the same. In other words, if you have come out of darkness in the light, if you, have, if you have had your life changed as a result of putting your faith in Jesus, then you are automatically an ambassador and you have automatically been given the ministry of reconciliation. It's not as though we can be a follower of Christ and not be an ambassador. We can't be a follower of Christ and not fish for men and women and teens and anyone else we come in contact with. You see, you can't be a faithful follower of Jesus without also being an ambassador of Jesus and also participating in the ministry of reconciliation. I read a story about uh, during Ronald Reagan's presidency, he had a secretary of state. His name was George Schultz. And George Schultz, Secretary of State at that time, I don't know if they still do, but I would imagine they do, that they had the responsibility of kind of commissioning new ambassadors to place them in the countries that they were being placed to serve in. And he also had the responsibility of when amb ambassadors would come back and maybe have some time back in the country, the Secretary of State would meet with them to talk about what's going on in the particular country they've been assigned to. And the story goes that every time an ambassador, whether it be a new ambassador or an existing one that's coming back to give a report, when they would come in his office and they would have the conversation, before that ambassador would leave the office, he would ask them to go over to this large globe in his office. And he would ask them a simple question. He says, I want you to identify, I want you to identify your country. I want you to identify your country. And without fail, over and over and over again, whether it be new ambassadors or ones that have been serving for years, they would get it wrong. So what they would do is they would spin the globe because they're thinking it's some kind of like a geography test. They would spin the globe over to the country that they've been assigned to. And they would point to Japan or the Middle East or wherever they were assigned. And they would go right here. This is, this is my country. And, 
And the Secretary of State would correct them immediately. He says, no, that's not your country. Your country is the United States of America. And you've been sent there to represent this country. Never forget what country you come from. Never forget your heritage. Never forget who you are. In other words, the Secretary of State says, don't forget your identity, because if you forget your identity, then you will not represent us well in the country you've been assigned to. That's not your country. This is, and so it is. And so it is. And I think this is exactly what Paul's trying to say in 2 Corinthians, is that our responsibility as ambassadors, engaging in the Great Commission, flows out of our identity in Christ. You can't have one without the other. You see, as a born-again believer, someone who's put their faith in Jesus, this world that I live in, this, this is not my home. The Bible is very, very clear about that that this is a temporary place that God has given me a ministry of reconciliation. I am part of a new country. And as part of that new country, my new identity flows from the king of that new country. And, and I've been given a new life, I've been given a new identity, and I've been given a new ministry, and I've been given a new purpose, and all of that is to be lived out in this foreign land. But this foreign land is not my home. That home will come later. But while I'm here with this new identity that I've been given, I am to represent my king well. And for everyone who's put their faith in Jesus Christ, so it is with you. Now turn to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're going to pick it up in verse 26. But before we do, I want to kind of recap kind of where we are in the book of Acts. So up until this point, thousands upon thousands have come to faith in Christ. Uh, by, the point, by the time we get to chapter 8, with Philip going down into Samaria, and now he's going to go down to Gaza, what we find are is probably, probably somewhere between twenty and 30,000 disciples. Again, that's an estimate. It could be more. Uh, but what is happening is the church is growing exponentially. The, the ministry now has, has gone beyond the walls of Jerusalem because of Stephen's death. And what we're seeing at this point in Acts is not only a, a, a movement, of the gospel, but now we're seeing momentum. We're seeing it pick up pace like you would imagine a, um, a snowball rolling down a mountain. As it rolls, it gets bigger and bigger and faster and faster. And what's happening at this point in the book of Acts is incredible momentum. Stephen has paid the ultimate cost for his faith in Jesus. And because of that, the church has spread beyond the walls of Jerusalem. Jesus said that they would be witnesses they would be witnesses of his, both in Jerusalem first, but then beyond Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost. We've already been in Samaria in Acts chapter 8, the earlier part of this chapter. Philip has gone down to Samaria, and they have seen another Pentecost in Samaria. They have seen the Holy Spirit fall, and that Gentiles... Not only not Gentiles in Samaria, but we're going to see a Gentile today. But Samaria, these were Jewish people, but they were Jewish people who were hated by the Jews of Jerusalem. And now what we find is, is that the Holy Spirit has indwelt them just like the Jews inside Jerusalem. But what we're going to find in verse 26 and following is the gospel going to the uttermost. We've seen it in Jerusalem, we've seen it in Judea, we've seen it in Samaria. And now with this one interaction between Philip and this eunuch, this Ethiopian eunuch, we're going to see the gospel go to the uttermost. I hope that you've been able to see some things that are a contrast, maybe, 
to, to how we do church today and how we do ministry today. Uh, most of what's happening in the early church is in homes, small, small groups of people meeting in homes. Uh, they are still committed to prayer and fellowship and making disciples who make disciples. They're committed to sharing the gospel. They are committed to breaking bread together, both in fellowship but also in communion. We see all those things that we saw in Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47. Those things are still being um, completed and done and, and, and even expanded upon as far as the number of people participating. But one thing that I've noticed, that the folks who are coming to faith in Christ are not having to be told to go tell someone else about Jesus. It is a striking thing. We, we, we don't see anywhere in these first eight chapters of Acts where Peter or John is having to convince disciples to go make other disciples. It's, it's automatically happening as an outgrowth of the Holy Spirit living inside of them and them being obedient to it. We, we don't find anywhere where they're being conjoled or convinced or commanded to go share. It's automatically happening, and we have to ask the question. If, if evangelism is, is that common in the New Testament church, where it's just automatic, and they're not having to be convinced or guilted or told, it's just happening. And we realize that the growth of the church at this stage, the growth of the church is one disciple telling another person about Jesus and the life that they found in him. It's not the work of the apostles. It's one person telling another person, and that person then tells another person, and that person tells another person. The growth of the New Testament church is one-on-one -on -one evangelism, not, not the apostles preaching in some big event, although they were continuing to do that. The exponential growth of the church at this stage is not a platform. It's not a building. It's not an event. It's one person telling another person about their new life in Christ. People who were ambassadors, who took ownership of the ministry of reconciliation, the Great Commission, and are being faithful. Now, before you start tuning out, <laughs> before you start checking out and, and shutting off the Facebook or the internet or wherever you are, and you're, you're thinking, oh, I know where this is going to go. I know a little bit about the story of, of Philip, and, and the pastor's going to beat me over the head about sharing the gospel with my neighbor. I'm not going to beat you over the head. What I am going to do is walk through this text, and what I want to do is give you four just practical. These are as practical as they come of what it means to be an ambassador, because I believe, I, I really do believe this. I believe that a reason a lot of your fear and in, in, in talking about Jesus and bringing him up comes out of maybe some things you learned that you need to unlearn. Um, I think some of the fear is, is it's just legitimate. You don't you don't, want to, um, you don't want to come across as being pushy. You don't want to come across as being a fanatic. I'm not really concerned about any of those things, but maybe you are because we're talking about spiritual life and death here. But maybe that's a concern that you have. What I want to do is I want to give you just four practical things I see right in, in Philip's life that you can apply today to be the ambassador that Christ has called you to be. This is not going to be a guilt trip. This is not going to be a, a whack you over the head on what you're doing wrong. What this is going to be is four practical steps on how you can start doing what Christ has called you to do, and that identity that you found in Christ can be played out in your life and around other people 
who don't know Christ. So let's take a look at verse 26. Now, the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Philip is in Samaria. The best we can tell, he's in Samaria when he gets this message from an angel. And in Samaria, things are going really well. As a matter of fact, there are people coming to faith in Christ. The Holy Spirit has fallen. Uh, Peter and John have been down there and, and laid hands on them, and the Holy Spirit was received. From this moment on, as people come to faith in Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit at that moment, and, and things are just going great. There's no real reason to leave Samaria. Because in Samaria, we have a, a mega move of God in that particular area, and Philip is right in the midst of it. As a matter of fact, Philip was the catalyst by which that got started. There's no reason to leave Samaria other than the fact that it's God's will that Philip leaves Samaria. So an angel appears to him, and he says, I want you to go 60 miles to the southwest to a little nowhere town, a little desert town is the way it's described right here in the text. And I want you to go down there. I've got something for you to do. He doesn't tell him exactly what's going on. This kind of reminds me of, of when God spoke to Abraham tells Abraham in all of his comfort and all of his wealth. He says, Abraham, I want you to get up. I want you to leave. I'm going to take you somewhere else. I'm going to show you a place eventually. With Abraham, he didn't even know where he was going. At least Philip knows where he's going, but he doesn't know why. I often wonder in situations like this, because right here it says, uh, verse 27, and he arose and he went. If, if I try to put my feet in, in Philip's sandals, I, I often wonder what kind of questions he was asking. Because that's my tendency. I don't know about you, but when the Lord asked me to do something, I, I immediately begin to ask questions. And I begin to wonder, why would, why would God lead me away from this effective evangelistic ministry in Samaria and lead me down to a place, a desert place, it says in verse 26? Why would, why would God do that? Why would not God just continue to use me here? I started this ministry. Why can't I stay here and continue to see what God does here? I don't know that Philip was asking those questions, but if I was in his shoes, I would have been. It would have been natural to ask those questions. But the amazing thing is, is that when God calls us from this to this or from one thing to another, when it's a major shift in our life, we have to realize that God is working in whatever he's calling us to do. God is already at work long before he ever spoke to you about it. God is already working those circumstances. And what God wants you to do is to join him in the work that he's already doing. So Philip gets up and he goes. Now, there's some time that passes between the time that Philip leaves and this God appointment occurs. We don't know how much time it would have taken him. We can kind of estimate how much time it would have taken him to travel. We don't know exactly where on this road from Jerusalem to Gaza that Philip met this particular person. But as he gets there and as time has passed, eventually here's what happens. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. Now, who is this guy? Well, this guy is probably from North Sudan, probably. From what I can tell, uh, from where Philip was, where Gaza was, and what historians are telling me, probably North Sudan area, somewhere from there. And it's a pretty long distance from where he's traveled, from North Sudan, if that's exactly where he came from, all the way up to Jerusalem. And it just so happens that as he's traveling down the road, he's traveling by chariot, probably an ox-drawn chariot. 
And it just so happens that he and Philip cross paths. Now, there is no other way in the world that Philip and this Ethiopian would have ever crossed paths if God had not directed Philip to go down to this particular area. There's no way it would have happened. Philip would have stayed in Samaria. This man is traveling south. He's already 60 miles south of where Philip was. But Philip has been told to go. Philip gets up and goes, and he runs into a guy who's an Ethiopian eunuch. Now, this idea of eunuch, I don't believe he was an actual eunuch as far as what we know to be uh, what has to happen for a man to become a eunuch. I think what is going on here is he's a servant, and he's a man who's been put over the treasury of this particular queen. So this is a man who is wealthy. This is a man who has a tremendous amount of influence. And this is a man, this is a man who just happens to be seeking something more than wealth, fame, and position. Look at verse, look at the latter part of verse 27. It says, he was in charge of all of her treasure, and here it is, he had come to Jerusalem to worship. This man has traveled all this distance to worship Jehovah God in Jerusalem. Now, he's a Gentile. And the reason I don't believe he was a complete eunuch is because he would have never been able to get anywhere near the temple as an actual eunuch. So I believe he was just a servant of Candace the queen, and he's able to go to the temple, but he's not able to go into the temple. He might have could have gone into the, tent, the Gentile, the court of the Gentiles, maybe, but more than likely, he's just visiting because there's something in him that has driven him to travel all this distance to simply worship God in Jerusalem. I don't believe he had converted to Judaism. I think he's a man who's looking for God. He's a man who's looking for something real. He's a man that we could probably consider, consider a God-fearer. He, there was something in him that drove him to go this much distance just to be in a place that he had heard that has the presence of God. Is it, and it just so happens that he's run into Philip an ambassador for Christ. And obviously this man has quite a bit of money and quite a bit of influence. To be riding in a chariot and to have a copy of Isaiah, which we'll get to in just a minute, this man had a lot of wealth and a lot of influence. The first principle, practical step I want to give you this morning is really simple. Simply be available. Be available. Be available and not be distracted. I, I was... Uh, I was reading an article in preparation for the sermon. I was reading an article about distractions. And uh, there was this big Harvard study done on, on why our minds get distracted. And I was just reading that because I get distracted. What's so funny about it is, is I, as I'm reading this article about distractions and why our minds get distracted, you know how these websites work. You've got these sidebars over here with videos, right? And, and there are these little videos that have nothing to do with the article whatsoever. It's just an advertisement for some product. And, and there's a video that over here, and I'm reading the article, and over here to my right is a little small video about that big. And all of a sudden, there's a video that starts playing of a guy who's jumping out of an airplane and doing all kinds of crazy stuff on a bicycle and out of a plane. He's parachuting. It's like, and it's, it's a GoPro video camera advertisement. Now, I don't jump out of planes and I don't jump bicycles off cliffs, but yet this video was so good, my mind goes from the article to immediately to this video, and I'm sitting here watching a video with no sound on about all these crazy stuff people are doing with GoPro cameras on their helmets or on their bicycles. Had nothing to do with the article. I don't know how much time went by, maybe 30 seconds. 
And then I look back to the article and I go, how convenient. <laughs> I'm reading an article about distraction and what am I? Distracted. Being available means that we're going to have to clear some clutter out of our minds and out of our hearts as disciples of Christ so that we can understand that, that we are ambassadors. And that means whether we're at Aldi or Walmart or pumping gas or, or whatever it is we're doing, that if we're so distracted with all of the stuff that comes from our phones and, and from the world in general, that, that we, we tend to forget that we're ambassadors and that we have a ministry of reconciliation and that God is bringing people into your path who are God appointments. But because of distractions, we're never even seeing those people, never even realizing that, that God has led us to a particular place. You may be just going through your everyday motions of life and never really thinking about it as a divine appointment, but yet they're happening every single day. People just like this eunuch who are seeking something more than what the world has to offer. They're all around us. I was, um, I was noticing the other day a person coming out of Walmart um, and I was trying to keep my social distancing, right? And as I'm walking in, there's a, there's a lady walking out, and, and she's walking right towards me. I mean, we got the whole parking lot, but she's walking right towards me. And the reason she's walking right towards me, didn't even see me, is because she's looking at her phone. She's texting and walking at the same time in a parking lot. And I'm trying to avoid her, and she keeps coming closer and closer, never even saw me. And I had to step around her to keep my social distancing and not run into her. Folks, we are distracted. Philip. He didn't get distracted with having to go from Samaria all the way down to the road that leads to Gaza. He, he wasn't distracted. He simply got up and went. And, and as he's going, he doesn't know exactly what God is going to lead him into. Maybe it's going to be another move like he saw in Samaria. He doesn't know. But God is going to lead him down here to interact with one person, just one. How many, how many people are, are God, is God leading into your life that... Maybe you look at it and it's just a set of coincidences, right? Maybe not. I know this, as long as we're distracted, we're never going to see the people that God has put in our path to be ambassadors for and help them to understand the ministry of reconciliation that they themselves are seeking for. Imagine this. God is working in that person's life and he's bringing you into that person's life or that person into your life for the sole purpose of you being the ambassador because God's already at work there. You imagine all the blessings you're missing out on? So you need to be available and not distracted. Be available. Be tuned into what God is doing around you. Tune out of the technology for a while and tune into God's work around you and God's work in you. And I promise you, you'll never lack of people to talk to about this Jesus that you're in love with. But notice what else happens. It says here in verse 28, and, and he was returning. He was returning from... Jerusalem back down to South or North Sudan through Gaza. He was seated in his chariot, this is verse 28, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. He's reading a scroll of Isaiah. First of all, these were, these were not common. You, you couldn't go to a bookstore and, and buy a copy of Isaiah. So it's incredibly unique that this one individual traveling on this one road that Philip has been directed to go to, he, Philip has just now begun to realize God's appointment for him. Early on, he didn't. And this particular guy that's in this particular chariot just happens to be a guy who has a copy of Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, 
Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet. So you, you, could, you could just say on the one hand, this is just all coincidence, right? I hope you can see that nothing we've seen in the book of Acts has been a coincidence. This is the move of God. And you have to think, you mean that God would direct a person to travel some 60 miles to a person who is different from them in every way so that this one person could hear the gospel and respond? Are, are, you, are, we, are we to think that, that God is that concerned about one particular individual? And I want you to understand clearly. I want you to hear this clearly. God is that concerned about you if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet. That God would do all of this, not only all of this, but Jesus would come into the world, he would live his life, he would live perfectly and die on a cross and resurrect simply so that you could be reconciled to God. That, that God would send Philip all this distance through all this trouble with all the stuff that he had to go through simply that one person could hear the gospel and respond to it. And you know what Philip does? He's chasing that. He's running next to this chariot. Chariot's probably not moving very fast. So he's kind of he's jogging alongside this chariot. Now, I would imagine that the eunuch in the chariot, if he looks up long enough from his scroll of Isaiah to see Philip, you, you know he's thinking, what is this guy doing? I don't know how much time, I don't know how long it took Philip to get to the chariot. I don't know how long he ran beside of it. But eventually, Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? Philip hears the eunuch reading the prophet Isaiah out loud. And, and Philip takes that opportunity to ask a simple question. Hey, do you understand what you're reading? I have to ask the question and, and ponder in my own mind, why, why Isaiah? Why do you think the eunuch is reading Isaiah? Well, and specifically Isaiah 53, the verses that he's struggling with at that particular moment are these, like a sheep he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this generation for his life is taken away from the earth? That is what the eunuch is struggling with. And this is what he's reading out loud. And maybe, maybe the eunuch is reading it over and over. Maybe he sits back in his chair and he's trying to figure out what all this means. But I want you to understand why he's reading the prophet Isaiah. Number one, the reason he's reading Isaiah is because Isaiah, unlike any other book in the Old Testament, gives so much hope to the nation of Israel. Yes, there is judgment. Yes, the prophet tells them that if they don't turn back to God, judgment is going to fall, and certainly it did. But all through the pages of Isaiah are this, is this hope of a Messiah who will come and set the world straight and set Israel straight. And in Isaiah chapter 52, you can look back there later on, in that chapter leading up to this suffering servant, you will read how that the great Messiah will restore Israel, that, that the Lord will redeem Zion, and that, that the Lord will, will dwell with his people in Zion. That's what you read in Isaiah 52. And all of a sudden, there is this huge shift to the suffering servant. And I wonder, I wonder if this eunuch has been reading Isaiah 52 and 53, and he's trying to figure out how could this guy on the one hand, the suffering servant, how can he be the one who suffers such agony, yet at the same time deliver the nation of Israel? He's wondering, is it the same person? Is it two different ones? And he's going through all of this, and all of a sudden, the stranger runs up next to his carriage and says, hey, do you understand what you're reading? And he says, how can I unless someone guides me? 
and he invited Philip to come and sit with him. And the eunuch said to Philip, verse 34, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? You see, the eunuch needed hope. The eunuch is already seeking reconciliation. He just doesn't know all the pieces of the puzzle. Why else would he be reading God's Word? Why else would he go all the way to Jerusalem to worship? Why else would this Gentile from Sudan, who is, who is different as you could possibly be from Philip, why in the world is he doing all of this? It's because God is already working in this person's life, drawing him to himself, and that same God directed Philip to go down to this road to Gaza so that this man could hear the gospel and put the rest of the pieces of the puzzle back together. Which leads me to my second point, second practical step. We need to engage in gospel conversations. You're having conversations every single day with your friends and family, and many of those people are lost. They don't know Jesus. You're already having conversations. You're already talking about the coronavirus. You're already talking about how you can't watch ESPN. You're already talking about how that everything has changed. You're already talking about all that. All you have to do is bring Jesus into the conversations that you're already having and turn the conversation toward the gospel. That's all that's left. Whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, you're having conversations every single day. But I want you to emphasize the conversation more than a presentation. What do I mean by that? Well, notice how, notice how Philip starts where the eunuch is. In other words, he listens, he observes, he's, he's running next to a chariot, and he realizes this man is reading Isaiah. He, he, Philip, in, in a matter of moments and under the direction of the Holy Spirit, realizes that this man is hungry for something. This man is seeking something, and this man has questions about the exact same text that speaks of Jesus who died on that cross years earlier. Now, you can't, there's no way you could have ever planned this in advance. This is the work of God that Philip is now joining. And what I mean, the, the difference between a gospel conversation and a presentation, a presentation starts with you. Uh, the presentations that we've learned, and some of them are really good, and you get some really good information and some good, uh, good tools to defend your faith. But really what we're talking about here is starting where the person is, and a conversation starts with them. Where are they? What's God doing in their life? What's the Holy Spirit doing here? And for this eunuch? He was searching for hope. Presentations often puts a lot of pressure on us to get everything right. Gospel presentations often center their focus on us. But conversations look to the other person and value the other person and value what God is doing in that person's life already long before you showed up. It's extremely effective with people who have no background to church. You see, the thing about conversations is, is, is we use everyday common conversation language, right? Now, when we start to talk about the gospel, when we start talking about Jesus, we still need to be aware of the fact that the majority of people that we're going to be sharing the gospel with in this area, yes, right here in the Bible Belt, may have very little experience with the church. 
Very little experience with the Bible. Very little experience with, with what it means to follow Christ. So, so when we start talking with them, we're going to need to use terms that they can understand. We've got to start where they are. Now, if they've been in church their whole life, but they still never put their faith in Jesus, absolutely, you can use words like salvation. You can use all those words that you've grown up with. But for that person that you're talking to who has never stepped foot in a church, we can be guilty of using what I call Christianese. It's language that only we know that the person sitting across from us has no idea what we're talking about. Notice that there are several barriers here between Philip and this eunuch. There's a cultural barrier, Gentile, Jew. He, he's from Sudan. He's probably, he's probably very different ethnically, the way he speaks, the way he talks, the way he dresses. Everything about this man is different. What binds the two together? is the prophet Isaiah and the fact that God is working in that man's life just as much as he is in Philip's to draw him to saving grace and saving faith. You see, people can tell if you care about them. People know if you truly care or if you don't. People can also tell if you really believe what you say you believe. They, they know if you really believe the stuff that you're saying. They have this amazing ability, even if they've never stepped in church in their life, they know if you really believe what you're saying. And they also they know if you care about them. And there's one other thing that another person can tell, a lost person can tell about your life, is they can tell if the hand of God is on your life or not. Those three things they can tell. And it's in those gospel conversations where not only you get to know that person, they get to know you. They get to, they get to realize that you do truly care, that, that you truly believe what you say you believe. And number three, you have the hand of God on your life. It's through a conversation where that's able to happen. It may be multiple conversations. It may not be exactly like what Philip, it could. But listen. You're already having those conversations every single day. Why not just bring Jesus up in the conversations you're already having? Notice what happens. He says, verse 34, And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Which leads me to a third principle. Focus on gospel truth, not lesser things. So if we are going to be available and not distracted, if we're going to have gospel conversations, conversations that turn towards Jesus, then, then when we start talking about Jesus and we start bringing up the difference that he's made in our life, maybe you start with your testimony. Maybe you, maybe you talk about what difference Jesus has made in your life and, and you begin to discern what this other person's dealing with. Maybe, maybe cancer has struck their family. Maybe they've got a loved one that has passed away and they're still struggling with the hurt and the pain of that. Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a broken marriage. Whatever it is, the door has crept open for a little bit for you to see that this person is hurting and they're seeking something and God has put you in their path. So that's where you are at this point. You're having a conversation. At some point, the gospel's got to come up. At some point, we, we, we've got to talk about the reason for the hope that is within us. But my goodness, it is so easy to get caught up in lesser things. 
it would have been an easy thing in this moment if I'd have been sitting in a chariot to talk about, hey, tell me about your life down in North Sudan. Tell me about what it means to be a, a financial advisor or over the treasury of a queen. I, in that conversation, what can happen is we get so enthralled with the conversation that Jesus is left out of the conversation and the gospel never comes up. Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8 speak directly to the gospel, the suffering servant. But, but, but this eunuch needs help understanding who it is that that particular prophecy is talking about. Is it talking about himself or is it talking about someone else? What a tremendous opportunity for Philip. But Philip has got to remain focused on the message. He's got to remain focused on his role as an ambassador. And his role as an ambassador is a ministry of reconciliation, and reconciliation only comes through the gospel truth. Those that respond by faith respond to the preaching, the proclamation, the sharing of the good news of the gospel. He used Scripture as his authority. He, he started where the eunuch was in Isaiah 53, he started there, and he began to make the connections to Jesus. This man, Philip, not an apostle. He's a second-generation Christian who was appointed to help out with the Hellenistic widows all the way back in Acts 6. He finds himself all the way down on the road to Gaza sharing the gospel. The beauty of this is, is it speaks to the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of believers is, is, this, is the idea or this doctrine that says that every person who's come to faith in Christ, you have a standing with God as a son or a daughter of God himself through Jesus Christ. In other words, you have all that you need to perform and do what God has called you to do as an ambassador, with the ministry of reconciliation. There is nothing else you need. As a matter of fact, when someone comes to faith in Christ, at that moment, at the very moment the Holy Spirit indwells their life, they have all that they need to do what God has called them to do. Philip didn't run to an apostle. Well, when, the, when the questions started getting deep about who is this man in Isaiah 53, uh, he, he didn't have to run to an apostle. He didn't have to run to anyone else. He trusted the Lord, and in that moment, the Lord gave him what he needed to say through the Holy Spirit. The priesthood of the believers, priests, you and I, saints, born again, declared righteous, Holy Spirit living in us, have all that we need in that moment to do what God has called us to do. The general fear that we have is, I won't know what to say, or I won't be able to remember the Bible verses, or I won't be able to remember the presentation. Put all that aside. And in the moment, yield to the Holy Spirit, trust Him, and you'll be amazed at what He does through you. If you'll just completely yield, you know what yield is, right? Is when we pull out of the parking lot to pull back on the robbers, we have to yield the right away to the other cars. In other words, we're going to yield the right away to the Holy Spirit. And whatever He says do and whatever He says to say, we're going to say. I'm not going to bring anything to the table other than the, the knowledge of the gospel and what I've learned and what I've been able to grow in my own faith. But I'm going to let the Holy Spirit use that as He sees fit. And I'm going to let Him use my mouth. And I'm going to let Him use my thinking. I'm not going to come to the table with some pre-programmed set of ideas. I'm simply going to have a conversation with this person that God has put in my path, and as soon as I can, as quickly as I can, I'm going to turn it towards Jesus so that they can understand about the ministry of reconciliation. 
But boy, it's easy to get caught up in lesser things. Lesser things being the coronavirus. Now, that doesn't seem like a lesser thing because it seems to be dictating everything in our life. But trust me when I tell you, this too is going to pass. The gospel will not. The coronavirus is going to have its day and we're going to move on, whatever that looks like. And I have no idea what it looks like. But I can tell you this, the gospel that has been available, that has changed your life, that, that began with Jesus dying on that cross and resurrecting, that will never change. And the fact that the person you're talking to is going to spend eternity in one of two places. That's not going to change, whether we have a coronavirus or another pandemic two years from now. Lesser things. Discussions about politics. That seems to be a hot topic right now, right? Politics are going to come and go. Candidates are going to come and go. Whatever you're arguing about over your particular candidate right now, three years from now, probably won't matter. And it'll be another candidate. So. To me, that's a lesser thing. Is it wrong to have those conversations? Not necessarily. But if God has brought a lost person into our path and all we ever talk to this lost person about is, is the current political stage, then we're missing out on an opportunity to see them find the same hope that you found. Even discussions about religion. It's incredible that when you begin to get into this place where you're talking about Jesus with a lost person, Distractions come up from everywhere. They want to talk about alcohol. They want to talk about the church's position on this. They want to talk about what they've heard in the news about the church and their position on this. And they want to chase all these rabbits. And what I'm here to tell you is, it, just stock step one, don't get distracted. Stay focused on the gospel. Stay focused on God's word. Stay focused on what really matters. Stay focused on the gospel truth. We need to be familiar with it. We need to be familiar enough with the gospel where we can share it. We, we need to have a few verses. Matter of fact, that 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through about 22 are be some awesome verses for you to commit to memory because you could use those verses easily in talking about that new identity in Christ. Somewhere between verse 35 and 36, now some of your translations, I think, probably the New King James, King James, a couple of other translations, they have an extra verse in here that the ESV doesn't have. And it talks about where the eunuch responds to putting his faith in Jesus, and it kind of gives us that little story there. Some translations don't have it, some do. Not a big deal, because what we know happens, somewhere between 35 and 36, this eunuch puts his faith in Jesus Christ. And as a result, Philip wants to baptize him immediately. Now, Philip already has kind of a, kind of a I don't know, a, a bad connotation in chapter 8 earlier on with a baptism, right? We remember Simon the sorcerer back there. This man had ex what seemed to be expressed faith. He was baptized, but only to find out that he had never put his faith in Jesus at all. So here we are again. Philip is saying, we need to baptize you because you've put your faith in Jesus while sitting in the back of this chariot. So they begin to look for water enough to immerse him in to baptize him, which leads me to my fourth practical step here. We need to boldly ask for a response. If, we have, if we've been in a gospel conversation and this person's been asking questions and you've been sharing the gospel and, and this person's beginning to get an understanding of what the gospel is, we need to boldly ask for a response. Now, in this chariot, 
although we don't have it in certain translations and some we do, what we can imagine is and what we see is that, that, that Philip looked at the eunuch and basically says to the eunuch, what's preventing you from putting your faith in Jesus now that you understand he's the suffering servant and now that you understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, what is preventing you from going ahead and putting your faith in him right now at this moment? That's what I always loved about Billy Graham. In every event that he ever did, whether huge or small, there was always the time of commitment. For him, it was just as I am, would start playing in the background. And he would present the gospel, and then he would stop talking, and he would say, respond. Now, we understand that walking down to the front of a building or walking down to the front of the stadium, that act itself is not salvation. Salvation is faith in Jesus, repentance, having a change of mind about who he is and what he's done. But I always appreciated that. And we need to be doing exactly the same thing. If the person says no, I always think of it this way. When you, when you ask for someone to make that commitment right then, you're going to get one of three responses. You're going to get a red light. A red light is, I'm done. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I'm not ready. I'm not, gonna, I'm not going to put my faith in Jesus. I'm not going to get involved with the church. And there's something still in their life that's preventing them to do it. Then we say, okay. And we agree to pray for them. And if there's an opportunity to meet later on, again, fine. But sometimes that may be the end of the conversation. If it is, then God is going to work in that person's life to do what he wants to do anyway. The second response is a yellow light. The yellow light is, ah, I'm not sure yet. You know, I, there's some things I really need to think about. There's some things I need to consider. There's some, ah, I don't think I'm ready. I'll put it off till tomorrow. That's a yellow light. A yellow light means you're going to have another conversation within just a few days. And what you're going to do in, those media, in that middle time there is you're going to be praying for them that the Holy Spirit continues to convict and continues to draw them and bring them to the end of themselves. And then a green light is exactly what you think it is. They say, I'm ready. They say, I'm ready to be reconciled to God. I'm ready to have the hope and the peace that you have. I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus. We've got to be willing to boldly ask for a response. And the trust is not in the presentation. The trust is not in the conversation. The trust is, is that God has been working in this person's life, has brought you into this person's life for such a time as this, that God would draw them to a place of surrender. He says, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? The eunuch says, look, right here's, right here's enough water. What, what, what's preventing me from, from being baptized? Well, there was nothing. There was nothing preventing them. And, and, and Philip takes this eunuch and goes down and they, they immerse him into this water and signifying this new identity, this new life, this new ministry, this new purpose in this man's life that God said to Philip, I want you to go down to a road that goes down to Gaza. Didn't tell him why, didn't tell him who he was going to meet, but you're going to go down there. And that God would do all of that that all of this travel and all of this time and all of this conversation for one person to put their faith in him. Did you know that in all these verses, there is as many verses dedicated to this one conversion, just as many verses as we see with Peter preaching that sermon in Acts 2 and 3,000 people coming to faith in Christ. I am so thankful that God values the one. That, that God values the one and, and the church should value the one. 
the one neighbor, the one coworker, the one brother or sister or uncle or aunt. We value the one person because we're ambassadors. And we have a ministry of reconciliation that they need to hear about. We don't coerce. We don't mislead. We don't bait and switch. We don't soften the gospel or are so hard on it that, that people can't even begin to imagine that themselves being a follower of Jesus. We're not looking to win. We're just looking to share what has changed our life. Taking us from death unto life. Giving us new life. Giving us freedom from our past. The person that you're going to have that conversation with is desperately wanting to know that there's some peace to be found in this world. They're desperately wanting that there's some joy to be found in this world. Surely it's not that we just live 50, 60, 70, 80 years and we just die and rot in a grave. There's got to be more. That's been placed there by God and God is stirring that up and God is stirring you up to have that conversation because it's an appointed time, a divine appointment that God has for you as an ambassador. We are not here to sell brand Jesus, right? We're not here to turn Jesus into some brand that you take on like you put on Adidas tennis shoes or, you know, a certain brand name shirt that you just put it on and you wear it for a while. And, you know, that's all there is. We're not selling a brand. We're not selling anything. All we're simply doing is sharing the truth one-on-one, one-on-two, three, four, five, whatever God puts in our path so that people can find the peace and the hope that we found and not have to spend eternity in a place of wrath and suffering called hell. That is what we're called to do. And if you're a Christ follower, then you're an ambassador. If you are a Christ follower, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. If you are a Christ follower, then you have been given the ministry and the mission to go make disciples of all nations. You can't separate the two. You can't. They're one and the same. Two sides of the same coin. And we need to be available not distracted. We, we, we need to be sharing the truth, having conversations with people and giving them the opportunity to respond. Father in heaven, the message is too good to keep to ourselves. The freedom and the forgiveness is too awesome to simply be silent about. The reconciliation between us and our Creator is so awesome and so wonderful. Father, we can't just sit on that message. But yet, Father, many are. And Father, I have to wonder if it's not connected to our identity, either a misunderstanding of who we are and what we've been called to do, or the fact that we've never been changed by the gospel, so we have nothing to give out. Father, you know the real reason. And during this time of commitment, in each home, wherever people are watching, they can bow their heads, they can listen to the Holy Spirit, who's prompting them to respond. But maybe it's to pray for that neighbor across the street who doesn't know Jesus. Maybe to pray for those names on the Bless Every Home commitment that each that several folks have made for a sister or for a brother, for a parent, 
for a child, a grandchild that, that doesn't know you. But Father, by praying and lifting them up, we also acknowledge, Father, that we have a connection with them already. And that, Father, you want to use us. You want to use us to have a conversation with the very people we're praying for. And, Father, maybe for the first time, someone who's been in church their whole life have been focused on rituals and going through the motions. Maybe right now they realize that they're lost. That they really don't have good news. Father, I pray that they would know that it's simply by believing, believing that Jesus Christ did die in our place and that he did resurrect. That we are willing to change our minds and to surrender all to him. That that would happen in this moment of commitment. We love you. We thank you. It's in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist. 